The word of God comes to us from Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 29. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise men, man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which, was, <clears throat> that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one uh, thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found." One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together before we consider this text. Lord, uh, as Chesterton said, we, we have sinned and grown old, but you remain young forever. Lord, I pray that, uh, that this morning, uh, like every morning, but particularly now, in the midst of the brokenness and darkness and hopelessness of the world, that you would give us life, the life that you have in yourself in the Trinity since before the beginning of time, Lord, your light, which is the light of the world. Uh, feed us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, now, if you were listening to that text closely at all, uh, there were things in there that sound pretty shocking and uh, against women. And so I'm just going to ask you to just to suspend belief for, for just a minute. We'll get there. Uh, I don't think he's actually saying what it sounded like he was saying. Uh, so don't walk out of the room quite yet. Uh, we'll talk about it in a little bit. <clears throat> I'd actually like to be bold and start instead with a poem. It's called Transatlanticism. It goes like this. The Atlantic was born today, and I'll tell you how. The clouds above opened up and let it out. 
I was standing on the surface of a perforated sphere when the water filled every hole, and thousands upon thousands made an ocean, making islands where no islands should go. Oh, no. Most people were overjoyed. They took to their boats, but I thought it less like a lake and more like a moat. The rhythm of my footsteps crossing flat lands to your door have been silenced forevermore. The distance is quite simply much too far for me to row. It seems farther than ever before. Oh, no. I need you so much closer. Uh, So this poem is not only a poem, it's actually a set of song lyrics. Uh, Some of you may have figured me out by now. Uh, This is uh, a song, an album that was popular when I was in college. Uh, This is what you get for having a young pastor up here. Uh, It's... uh, the song is filled with, uh, the album is filled with songs uh, about uh, broken relationships, uh, breakups, summer relationships, one night stands. Uh, and in, in the middle of it, you get this song about the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, just to make sure we're all on the same emotional page, I thought I'd play you uh, just the first few seconds to kind of get the feel of what we're talking about. So let's, let's see if this works here. Gives the idea, I think. Uh, it takes seven minutes to get through that one little poem. Uh, and I think that in the midst of this album about uh, broken relationships that the artist, uh, Ben Gibbard, who's, by the way, an English major from Western Washington University, just a shout out to my home state, <clears throat> is using the Atlantic Ocean as a metaphor for the inevitable, unavoidable distance between people, that he's saying that no matter how close you get to another person, uh, romantically or relationally or physically, that there's still this gap, like the Atlantic Ocean, that is ultimately uncrossable and unavoidable. Um, Sort of uh, a common theme in indie music, particularly for my generation, of just the impossibility of actually knowing someone well or having a permanent, uh, secure relationship. There's uh, another style of music uh, called punk music, and the punk rockers basically say, uh, let's live for the moment, let's drop out of school and get married and we'll live out of my van. Yeah, it'll be awesome. And uh, we used to joke in college that the indie rockers were basically like the punk guys who grew up and found out that the world didn't really work that way and uh, wrote songs Uh, about how thoroughly it didn't really work that way. Uh, The helpful thing about popular albums is that, uh, you know, people who write songs and people who buy songs uh, aren't stupid. Uh, That songwriters write about something that connects to them and people buy albums about things that connect to them. And there is a, a truth 
here. I know that many of you feel it on some level or another about the, the ultimate brokenness and impossibility in relationships. Uh, and I think that's something that Solomon himself was wrestling with in this passage. I mean, he says there's nothing new under the sun. We should expect that if we have something that we deal with in our culture, that it would be reflected in the Bible. Uh, and even for those of us who don't feel the brokenness quite so strongly, I think for all of us, on some level, there's this way that we tend to interact with each other as if we were inside biohazard suits. Uh, that on some level, there's something that's not quite right about the way the world is, uh, which is a common theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to uh, let Solomon kind of lead us on a journey through uh, this mess and see if we can be guided by his wisdom. We're going to take a look at the passage in three chunks. Uh, The first one is that first big paragraph, verses 15 through 22. Um, It starts... In my vain life, I have seen everything. Uh, Now, in the Hebrew world, everything a lot of times can be expressed in sort of two extreme opposites. Uh, Through all things, through light and through darkness. Uh, You know, God has separated our sins as far as the east is the west. And so everything, uh, we kind of expect two opposites. And then here we go. He, He says, in my life, I've seen everything. Namely, on one hand... There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. On the other hand, there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, the Solomon of Proverbs is uh, fond of saying things like, look, you get up early in the morning and you work hard and uh, work hard to late at night and save your money and don't talk about people behind their backs and things will go well for you. And uh, if you're lazy and you don't work and you don't save your money and you talk about people behind their backs, things won't go well for you. Uh, And that's true. It's good advice for life. But in this book, the same Solomon is saying, that's true. But then, say, for example, there's a righteous man who's saving his money and there's an unrighteous man and then a hurricane comes and they both die. What are you going to do about that? That he's, he's drawing... Attention that draws out, I think, more deeply what he means in, in Proverbs. Uh, that and there is a sense in which the Proverbs don't seem to quite work. That we see righteous people going through great suffering, and we see wicked people who seem to live just fine. And so what, what is with the pro- Proverbs? Um, it draws out... Uh, partly that there are uh, there are many kinds of righteousness. Uh, righteousness for us, um, because we spend so much time in the church world, means something very specific. It means uh, our sins are unrighteous in God's sight, and so he forgives them, and, and we become righteous. Well, righteous generically just means well-doing. Uh, a pastor of mine once complained that uh, he was so busy, either with his family or with the church, that he barely ever kept his yard up to par, but the family across the the street spent all weekend, every weekend in their yard, and they had what he called lawn righteousness, uh, of which he was quite envious. It's a type of righteousness. In a sense, they've done rightly. They've done what you would expect. They kind of put everything in its place. Um, Specifically here, this is righteousness designed to get you ahead in the world. 
the word for advance or, or gain is one of the most common words throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes, even more so than vanity of vanities, that one of the things that Solomon is looking for is how do you get ahead? And, uh, and we see right here, there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Um, if we think of, of righteousness in this way, I think it helps make sense of that suggestion to not be too righteous. Uh, it's the sort of righteousness of, of keeping our lawns clean or doing a lot of exercise and working out to ensure that we have a long life. Uh, those are right, but there's really no ultimate guarantee that you're going to make it past 35, uh, no matter how much working out you do. Uh, Likewise, the wickedness here, I think, means um, the sort of wickedness that might appear wicked to, uh, to a fundamentalist, to someone who's really committed to being overly righteous. It's uh, what uh, we sometimes in our circles call Christian liberty. Uh, things like having a drink or smoking a cigar. Uh, they're not necessarily wrong, but Solomon is saying... Don't, don't do this too much. There's, there's a very thin line between enjoying the liberty of having a beer uh, and becoming an alcoholic. It's one you should be careful of. Uh, the common thread in both of these things, in the righteous man who's really trying to control his existence by working out or constantly going to marriage seminars or keeping his lawn straight or having the right parenting method for his kids, what's common in all of those things is really an interest in self. That's what would make this sort of righteousness disappointing if it didn't pan out. It's the sort of righteousness whose goal is to ensure in a, a, the perfect, well-behaved children or the seminar that, that guarantees you to have a, uh, an affair-free marriage. It's sort of a, a control to hedge against uh, the dangers of the world. Uh, to give us the sort of life we want. And likewise, the wickedness really has the same end. Well, I'm free to have a beer, so I'm going to have one, I'm going to have two, I might have five. It's great. What a great evening this is. That, in a sense, the goal is the same, to, uh, to follow the pursuit of happiness. I'm kind of taking pot shots at Thomas Jefferson here. Uh, the pursuit of happiness for the end of my own gain. He says in the end, the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. He's sort of suggesting a a, a third way that peace with God uh, and a life of peace is not to be found in being overly righteous in a controlling sense, nor uh, in filling ourselves with too much pleasure. Uh, Joel, Cook, and I are both currently listening to a bunch of lectures on uh, apologetics and outreach evangelism, basically, from a professor at Covenant Seminary, Jerem Bars. And one of the things he says is uh, one of the characteristics of our age is an emphasis on uh, personal liberty and freedom, that we are and should be able to do whatever we want. And, And there's a true side to that, but he says the consequence is when life has lived ultimately for my own gain, it destroys the possibility for any true community 
Um, he says that if you live your life that way, your marriage will be destroyed and your children will leave home as soon as they can and they will not come back. Um, that it's, uh, it's one of the most destructive forces uh, in our age is this emphasis on, on my personal rights to do whatever I want with no boundaries and no real moral standards. Uh, and you can perhaps sense already how we're sort of working our way back to where we started about uh, relationships. We'll take a look at, uh, well, this uh, section ends with three proverbs that I think basically serve to underpin the same idea. He says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So wisdom is a great thing. But surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Uh, In other words, you're not there yet. And not only are you not there yet, but you should be careful to look down on, to not look down on people who look to you like they're not there yet, that we're all, we're not there yet, uh, living the way we should in wisdom. And so he sums up, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Kind of closes out this idea of, hey, be careful about pursuing things on either direction with the ultimate end of satisfying yourself only. So we get to the next section, the next chunk. He begins this way, verse 23, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And uh, if we think about Solomon as the author of Ecclesiastes, and there's no reason to suppose that he wasn't, Uh, this makes a lot of of sense with his life. I think at this point in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's sort of run out of steam. Remember back in the beginning, he says, hey, I'm going to seek out wisdom. I'm going to test myself with knowledge and with pleasure and with food and with women, and we'll see what we can find out. And this is kind of where he's landed, that it has been far off from me and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I sort of imagine that Solomon has arrived at a a very similar place as Ben Gibbard, my uh, indie band artist from earlier, a sort of uh, a sober realization of the the ultimate brokenness of the world, that he tried himself with pleasures. We talked about these two options as sort of the road of self-serving righteousness, legalism, and the road of pleasure and... uh, I think in many ways he has chosen the road of pleasure. And so we get a specific example of what happens with one of those roads. Uh, he's pretty burned out. And he tells us about that a little bit specifically. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is in madness. And I found something more bitter than death. All this is a wind-up. He's about to tell you this. Something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. I think Solomon is saying, I'm that sinner. I have been taken, and I'm bleeding 
I might look whole on the outside, but inside it's more bitter than death. I've been ruptured. There's blood just kind of coming out uh, from the wounds. And it makes sense of what we know in Solomon's life that he became king. And the Lord said, what can I give you? And Solomon said, give me wisdom. And he was indeed blessed with wisdom more than any man who lived before or after. Uh, He built and consecrated the temple and ruled wisely and justly in Israel. Uh, But then as we read farther along in Kings, we found out that he became enamored with all the things that he was accumulating, money and stuff and food and piles of wealth and women. It says that he had hundreds of wives and hundreds more concubines, which are really just women that he had in his life, but for one purpose. And uh, this was something that, ex- that he had been explicitly warned against doing. Uh, and I think the great encouragement about Ecclesiastes is that if Solomon indeed wrote this, then we know that at the end, he got it. That the story didn't end with him wandering off, um, being snared, as the Bible says, by, by foreign women, but that he understood the brokenness. The woman here he's speaking of is not women universally. It's a specific sort of woman that I got myself into a relationship with that has hurt me more bitterly than death. And in that sense, it's really applicable to both men and women. It's descriptive of what happens when we get into relationships with only ourselves in mind. And then we find ourselves in relationships with people who only have themselves in mind. And so we use them, and they use us, and we get hurt more bitterly than death. Verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. I think really what he's saying here is that uh, even with everything I had and everything I've pursued, I've found Almost no male friends and no female friends. Uh, again, this is, I do not think this is a statement about women in general. Solomon is speaking about the experience of his life. And who would be surprised that in hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines that he would not find a true resting place and a faithful heart that he has scarred himself Uh, this is, uh, I think, something really important for us to hear that we uh, are not often enough brave to speak about in this age that our culture has, uh, with great excitement, swept away sort of all moral standards. And uh, this this is not the message I I prefer to preach, but the, the moral standards are there for our benefit, to protect us from harm. Uh, and uh, I'll speak carefully because there's many young ears here, but uh, you young people in particular need to know uh, that relationships built like this upon self-interest, which our culture and television shows communicate to us as vibrant and exciting and natural, uh, end like this. They are tremendously painful. And uh, if you have any questions or concerns, uh, any struggles, you are welcome to come and chat with me or Pastor Todd for you. I have lots of time. Uh, Feel free to seek me out at any time. I'd be happy to talk about these things. Uh, For all of us, um, 
Now, this may not seem to apply so directly, but there's still this, this the common seed is the seed of self-interest. Uh, and even in our Christian marriages, nurtured at Christian marriage conferences, the, the seed of, of darkness is the seed of me first. Um, that I think any of us can relate to. Uh, well, where, uh, where's the hope in this passage? We're at the third point now. Uh, uh, my third chunk, and uh, I don't know if it really gleams out to you where the hope is here, and that's why I titled this sermon A Small Light in a Very Dark Place. We sort of explored the, the darkness, um, the hurt that can come in, in the world, uh, specifically in relationships, but in all sorts of ways from self-seeking. But what's the hope? I think it's this last verse, verse 29. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And at first hearing, what you hear Solomon is saying is, and not only is everything messed up, but it's our fault. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you realize that he just dropped us the, the first toehold on hope, the first little piece of light. He's brought in a piece of truth that cannot be learned simply by observation or experience. That's largely what Ecclesiastes is about. I went out there in the world to seek stuff out, to see how I could get advantage, and it turned out vain. But here's, here's a little piece from the biblical storyline. God made man upright. It hasn't always been this way. Uh, and it makes a great, great difference for us. Between saying, uh, like our indie rock bands, the world is fundamentally messed up and relationships are impossible. There's a, a huge difference between saying that and saying the world is fundamentally messed up. And relationships on some level are fundamentally not possible. But it hasn't always been that way. And this is not the way that it was supposed to be. And this is why... Many of you uh, share difficult things in your life. Uh, I'm very slow to jump to, well, the Bible offers us some encouragement. And it's not because I don't believe that, but I want to start with what I think is square one, the beginning of faith, which is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Which is why what I usually say is, I'm so sorry. This is really wrong. Whether it's uh, a broken relationship or disease or financial struggle, that this is not the way the world should be. This, this is our, our toehold that Solomon has grabbed a hold of him for himself. And I want you to see it's, it's a highly biblical one. Uh, I think it's a, a theme I've shared here before. Uh, recently I discovered this from the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul is uh, talking about um, the great difficulty of his ministry. He says, uh, this is the end of 2 Corinthians 4, uh, We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. He's, he's just finished sort of letting them in on how difficult his life really is. And then he says this, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I be- according to what has been written, quote, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. 
And uh, we read this passage, usually what we hear is, Paul's really in the depth of struggle. But he believes, and so he speaks the gospel, and now he's going to communicate the gospel to the Corinthians. Uh, But the details are always in the context, and Paul is quoting an Old Testament passage. He's quoting from Psalm 116. And if we go back to Psalm 116 to see what he's quoting, Psalm 116 says this, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. That's the verse he's quoting, which means that what he's really saying is not, ah, things have been so hard, but I believe, and so I'm communicating the gospel, which would be true. What he's really saying is, I've had a really hard time, and because I believe, I'm telling you about it. Because I believe that it's actually faith, that things have not always been this way, that this is not what was intended, that gives us the ability and the hope to complain, to mourn in a truly Christian way. Um, I'm drawing this out at length because I think that this is the first antidote to the selfishness that I've been talking about this whole time, that it will do us no good to say, oh, my Relationships are damaged because I'm consistently self-interested. So I'm just going to stop being self-interested and I'm going to serve other people. Uh, It doesn't work that way. What that does is that actually just gets us back to that first kind of righteousness. The kind of righteousness that's really done for our own good. I think the first toehold is to be able to say, this is not the way that it was supposed to be. Um, And uh, just to tie in with one more passage that I think can give us another PC. If it's not always been that way, then that means that it's possible that it won't always be that way. Paul again says in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time, for which we could include sufferings of relationships like Solomon's, or all sorts of sufferings of, of sickness, of cancer that we've talked about before, all sorts of sufferings. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation with waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it in hope. Uh, that in this whole passage, Paul is saying, look, yes, we're suffering, but here's the hope. That not only was it not created this way, it was subjected in hope that it will be restored in the end. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Um, There's much more here that I don't have time to read, although it would be great uh, if this has struck a chord with you, for you to spend some time with Romans chapter 8. Uh, but Paul is drawing out this same theme of the brokenness of the world leading to genuine honesty about suffering, which leads us to hope for the future. And uh, to give it just a little more edge, uh, to bring in Christ and the gospel, uh, Solomon said in his passage, there's not one righteous, not one, which is... Now, almost completely true, but not quite. Because there was just one. Uh, And unlike Solomon, and unlike us, he is the one who has never 
been burdened and grown old with the weight of sin. He is, uh, as Chesterton says, eternally young. And he has that life uh, to give us in the midst of the struggle. If we come to him with this sort of honesty uh, and with prayer and the help of the Spirit, as Paul talks about, uh, he has life that can give us hope now, not the kind of hope that control our existence so that we know that we'll have the perfect marriage and we'll live till 90. It's a, a totally different kind of hope. It's a third way uh, that Solomon is drawing us into. Uh, I'll end with a story uh, from a book called The Silver Chair, uh, which is in a series, the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. How many of you have read these? Uh, I like to see that. Uh, if you haven't, these are wonderful books. There's children's books. Read them for yourself. Uh, read them to your children so you have a chance to read them for yourself. Um, in the middle of the book, uh, the prince uh, and the two children from our world who've come there to fight for good and redemption uh, find themselves captives in a ginormous underground universe. And they've just freed the prince and uh, an evil, wicked queen has put them under a spell. She's tossed some scents on the fire and the scent is a magic spell that's entering the room and she's trying to convince them that the, the world above ground isn't real. And that Aslan, who represents Christ, is not real. Uh, that they're all just dreams. She's enticing them to uh, really a world of doubt and cynicism. Uh, just like my favorite indie bands. That uh, there's really no ultimate hope. Uh, and then C.S. Lewis writes this. The prince and the two children were standing with their heads hung down, their cheeks flushed, their eyes half closed, the strength all gone from them. The enchantment was almost complete. But Puddleglum, <clears throat> he's a character in the story, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire. Then he did a very brave thing. He knew it would hurt him not as much as the children, but badly enough, and so he did it. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth. And two things happened at once. First, the sweet, heavy smell grew very much less. For though the whole fire had not been put out of it, a good bit of it had, and what remained smelled very largely of burnt marshwiggle. Puddle glum is an animal called a marshwiggle which is not at all an enchanting smell. <laughs> this instantly made everyone's brain far clearer. The prince and the children head up their heads, held up their heads again and opened their eyes. Secondly, the pain itself made Puddle Glump's head for a moment perfectly clear. And he knew exactly what he really thought. One word, ma'am, he said to the evil queen. All you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. And he goes on to describe all that she said uh, about how the world isn't real. Then he says, all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of the kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. Uh, and he goes on saying, he, he, I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side if there is any Aslan to lead it. Uh, we see here, I think, is what Solomon is talking about and what C.S. Lewis was so wise to put in, that uh, 
pain, as Todd talked about last week, can be tremendously clarifying, uh, especially if we combine it with hope for things that seem not quite real, uh, to hold on by faith that things haven't always been this way, nor will they always be this way. Let's hold on to this life together. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I thank you for this, this small light uh, in what sometimes seems like a great darkness in the world, Lord. I pray that you would often in our lives refresh us with the smell of burnt marsh wiggle uh, to help us return as Solomon returned at the end of his life to write this book for us and to hold again to the truth, Lord, that you are making all things new. Hold us together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.